0: good morning, church. Again, happy Father's Day again to the dads. And those of you who are watching online, we are glad that you're joining us. We're going to do a little bit of review and some of our uh, going through revelation and cover some new ground. No, you're fine. I just, I mean, I want to listen if you're going to play. I don't know what happened. Um, Man, it's a little crazy this morning. Um, Which is good. I like that. We, uh we're going to look a little bit at Revelation 11 and 12, uh, just as some overview stuff. So if you want to put your finger in there, you can. And uh, those of you who've been around, we've been going through the book of Revelation, and, and I said it's, it's more of a, a thematic study. Uh, although we did uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3 exegetically, as we jump into the rest of the book, we were going to cover themes. And we've had a few uh, Sundays where things got kind of changed up a little bit. And so because of that, we got out of order in the series and uh, Rich is preaching the next two, which actually comes out of chapter 4 and 5. He's teaching the throne and the lamb, uh, which is why I'm pretty sure that uh, Chris had the, that song in there, because we're supposed to be talking about the lamb this morning, And so, which is great. And so we're excited about that part of the series. And so I just kind of ended up in this little middle ground here. And so I wanted to cover so, a few kind of wrap-up things and talk about some things that are coming up in Revelation and... and uh, and I'm excited about that. So yesterday, we were uh, at a wedding. We were at uh, Bailey Babcock's wedding. Uh, those of you uh, remember her. And uh, Mark Colligan, who used to be a pastor here, uh, he did the wedding. And so those of you who know him, this story will mean a little bit more. But if you don't know him, it doesn't matter. Um, Mark uh, starts off this uh, introduction to this, two, this couple being joined together. Uh, with, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, the conflict of marriage, right? Like, there's conflict in marriage, and I'm just sitting there going, "Oh, this is so marked." Like, you know, let's let's just jump right into it, right? And so, but his point was that it's in conflict, right? That we we grow together, we learn things about. It's a mirror, you know, like we we see the mirror of ourselves and our spouse, and and he was just calling them to embrace the conflict that we encounter in marriage, as being, there's good in it. Now, I say that because when we when we deal with revelation, and I've been saying this, some of you just grew up with this whole idea of revelation that, you know, the rapture, we're out of here, um, and it was used in, in my time growing up as more of an evangelistic call. Like, you don't want to be here for the tribulation, so you better accept Jesus so you get your ticket on the rapture. And Here's part of the the point of Revelation, though, and and it repeats several times. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 10, it says it this way. Here is the call for endurance and faith of the saints. Like throughout the book, right, we just finished the the seven churches in Revelation, and and what are we constantly being reminded to do, to to conquer, to, to, to endure? And so there's this part of Revelation where we don't just see it as this ticket out of here, but we see it as a reminder that we are gonna face tribulations in this lifetime and we need to endure and be faithful to the end. And so I wanna talk about the church being faithful in what Revelation refers to as Babylon. Now, just so you know, and I know some of you are very literal, and you're thinking, okay, there's gonna be a future of Babylon again and just, 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 Rest a little bit in that there is some imagery in Revelation. Okay, those of you who just grew up strict Baptist. There's some imagery in Revelation. They're living in Rome when this is written, right? The Roman world. And they're not thinking, they're not thinking oh, what about when Babylon comes back? No, they understand the whole Old Testament picture of Babylon. Like, Babylon is the evil empire. It's a nice way for John to write about Rome without having to use Rome's word. Right? Everybody that reads it goes, I know I know what Babylon we're talking about. And you're supposed to read it the same way. Oh, I know what Babylon we're talking about. We're talking about the Babylon I live in. Okay, and so how does, how does the church live in Babylon? And just by way of, of um, reminder, um, we have uh, um, just an overview. Revelation chapter 1 was all about a revelation of Jesus. Remember, a revelation... Right? An apocalypse of Jesus. And then in chapters 2 and 3, we saw Jesus in the midst of his churches. In chapter 4, we're going to see Jesus on the throne. In chapter 5, we're going to see Jesus presented as the lamb that was slain. And we have this lion and lamb imagery there that's going on. And just so we're five chapters in, what's the book of Revelation about so far? It's about Jesus. And there's no reason to think it switches. It switches. Okay, it's about Jesus. Now, in chapters 6 through 16, we have this section of what you think of when you think of Revelation, which is these judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. And, and I grew up, and many of you grew up, with the idea that these were, you know, there was the trumpets, and then there was the seals, and then there was the bowls, and we're trying to put these all on a timeline. I told you I'm not going to give you a timeline. I won't do it. No maps for you. There is an interesting pattern in these three things. As you look at them, both the the, the trumpets, the seals, the trumpets, and the bulls, there's six judgments, and then there's a little break in the action in each of the sections, in which uh, it usually is, is referring to the relationship of Jesus and his churches or what the people are going through. And then there's chapter seven, which is very much, or the seventh one, whatever it is, which is very much day of the Lord, imagery, the end. And so some have said, these aren't three separate series of judgments. It's the same judgments just repeated in different imagery, uh, which is an interesting thought because if you look through the whole idea of on the third day comes, you know, resurrection. And so that's one way of looking at it. But either way, we've got these judgments. And there's a little bit of a break, uh, again, in the actions in chapters 12 through 14. And some of those go back in history. And some of them, you know, depending on how you interpret it, is going on in the, the, the The midst of Revelation and all the the tribulation. And then 17 through 19, first half, the fall of Babylon. 19, second half through 20 is the final battle. And 21 through 22 is the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's heaven. So there's just kind of an overview. So although many of you grew up with this idea of it's a ticket out of here, I want us to focus on the theme, or at least one of the themes throughout the book. And it's this call for endurance and faith of the saints. We're called to overcome. That's the word the ESV uses. Some of your Bibles use conquer. We are called to overcome. And at least three things, there's probably more, but at least three things that are major themes in Revelation. We're called to overcome false teachers. We're called to overcome apathy. And we're called to overcome the dragon. And so let's look at that uh, here just kind of by way of reminder. Look, thinking about the seven churches, we're called to overcome false teachers. And uh, we saw these false teachers in these first two chapters. They refer to the, this, this Balaam controversy, and, and we're trying to figure out exactly what the heresy was that was going through there, and we talked about that. And when I think of false teachers, I think they fall kind of in, in five categories. These are really broad categories, but I think they're helpful. And uh, you'll see a pattern here. The first is those who deny a need for a Savior. Those who say, oh, I don't need to be saved. I don't need Jesus to save me. And typically, they're going to say, you know, uh, you're making a big deal out of sin, um, this idea of separation from God, God loves everybody, we don't need a Savior. That's a really popular heresy today. I know that we don't deal with it in conservative Baptist churches, probably, and I shared with you uh, early on this book by Childress uh, that's called Another Gospel. Really encourage you to read that. It's a really good one, and she deals with that in in a great way. The second thing that we struggle with, and it's just slightly different, but it's the idea of the identity of the Savior. And, and specifically, if you look at church history, what people have tried to do over the centuries is just change who Jesus is just a little bit. And, and because if, if there's, it, it, it takes everything that Jesus is and does to save us. Let me just say that again. It takes everything that Jesus is, fully man and fully God, And everything that he did, his life, his death, and his resurrection to save us. And so if you can just tweak part of that, then you mess up salvation. A really great book. I'm not going to do this for everyone, but Todd Miles has this great book out. He's a uh, professor at Western Seminary. I use this in my class. Superheroes can't save you. And I love it because it's so accessible. And he takes superheroes, okay, comic book superheroes, okay, folks, And he uses their their background to describe heresies in the church. For instance, Superman. And in the Superman uh, controversy, we talked about this many, many months ago. It's the, a few years ago now, Doctrine of uh, Docetism, And it's basically this idea that Jesus was just God in disguise. Like, and I love that because Superman's disguise was so stupid. Like, when you watch the old movies, like, he put on a, some glasses and walked to work, and nobody knew who he was? What, is everybody in New York facially blind, or what, what is going on here? So, but, but that's the idea, that Jesus was just, and that's, that is a heresy. And so when we, when we mess up the identity of Jesus, and, and the book of Jude uh, covers this really well, too. Um, just They change the grace of God into a license for immorality. So the work of the Savior... Um, here's where the idea, and we've talked about this too, the idea that we, uh, we need a Savior who went to the cross and is our substitutionary atonement. And, and some people say, well, oh, the cross is really bloody and we don't need that. It's like, no, we need the cross. Okay, so they deny the work of the Savior. And what we see in our society more than anything, and to be honest with you, that creeps into the church quite a bit, is the people who deny the authority of Jesus. The original sin, at least in some part, is I'm going to define good and evil on my own. And we do that in the church, we do that in society. You know what happens when everybody defines good and evil on their own? There is no definition of good or evil. And so we have to succumb to the authority of Scripture and the authority of Jesus Christ. And as we talk about Revelation, I think you know, especially in our society, we talk about the return of Christ. We want to talk about the rapture. We want to talk about end times. You know, it's it's interesting whether people really will hold to the idea of the return of the Savior. You know, I, in my preaching over the years, I've wanted to emphasize the idea that it there is a kingdom, right? We live, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Like, we want to live the kingdom principles of Scripture today. But understand that the kingdom is both now and not yet. And there's a big swing in some people that kind of grew up in the church. They're really concerned with the kingdom today, but they don't want to talk about the kingdom come. And, and both are there. And so uh, I think the return of the Savior is something that's being rejected. And we see that even in the New Testament. People say, oh, Jesus already came, or Jesus is coming. And, and so it, when, we live, when we live in light of the idea that, that, that Jesus is returning, You know, that's why we have the picture in Revelation of both the lion and the lamb. Because, you know, if I said, hold on, everybody, there's a lamb in the building, you would all go, oh, I want to see the lamb. Okay. But if I said, and, you know, obviously you wouldn't believe me, but if I said, there's a lion in the building, okay, you might want to go for an exit, right? And so just so you know, the lion is returning. And so there is a huge aspect, and it's going to be one of our themes that we discuss in our series of Revelation, of judgment. And we have a society that, that I, don't, I don't want to talk about judgment, you know, we don't, we don't judge people, um, you know, everybody, you know, can do what they want. That's not the middle section of Revelation. And so we have to embrace that. The second thing I think that Revelation is calling us to is, is this, this idea of, of apathy. Um, we have apathy towards the church. Um, and we can, we can put that in all these different ways. When we're talking about this idea of the seven churches, we saw the church in Ephesus, you lost your first love. You say, well, the first love is Jesus. Yes. But more than that, the idea of just loving each other. We talked about that. We talked about the, the, the church in Sardis. You're lukewarm. I mean, I don't, there can't be a better word for apathy than lukewarm Eh, i could take it or leave it right and so we get to this point we're waiting for jesus and we're we're going through these things and it's like jesus you know i just we just get apathetic and let's just think of our own lives for a minute when you first came to christ that first bible study man that that first time you were serving in the church can't believe they're letting me take the offering. Can't believe they're letting me work with children. Whatever it is, and the excitement, and you're, and you're thinking to yourself, man, I, this person needs to hear about this, and this person needs to hear about it. Now, here we are 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road. Do we have that same passion and drive for what's happening in the church? We become apathetic. We become apathetic towards the mission. I've tried witnessing, it's hard. Let other people do that. The idea of making disciples, it's hard. Let other people do that. And we said, look, if Jesus is returning, (laughs) we better be loving other people. We want to be hot or cold, remember, useful. We want to be doing the things that God has called us to do. We want to be... Overcomers, And if you're just sitting around waiting for your ticket for the rapture, you're missing the storyline of the Bible. And there's another theme in here, and we've become apathetic to it. And that is towards the warfare that's in this story. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 11. I'm just going to tell you that right now. Chapter 11, verses 1 through 14, to me, is the hardest piece of Scripture to interpret in all of Revelation. And Revelation is not easy. And uh, what, doing our Through the Bible reading, I just it was about a year or two ago, um, I said, you know what, I've been reading this, and I, and I said to myself, you know, Dave, if you could understand Revelation chapter 11. Then the rest of this is going to fall in place. And so I did try to do a deep dive on this real quick. It, you know, just grab. I'm like, I'm going to read those who say it's all figurative, and I'm going to read those who say it's literal. And I read all those who said it was figurative, not all of them, but a bunch, and I'm like, oh yeah, I'm convinced. Then I read the other ones and go, I don't know, I'm convinced. And, and here's why. I mean, because you. Let me read it, and let me just tell you some of this. Let me. We're not going to go too deep, but then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, John was, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar of those who worship there, imagery from Ezekiel. But do not measure the court outside the temple, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now, here's these two witnesses. So who are these two witnesses? Look at verse 4. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands. So here's, here's, here's the issue. We've, lampstands should already ring a bell to you. What do the lampstands represent? Churches. And so you go, oh, it's figurative. Okay, John can't switch up his imagery here. Okay, and that, I, and olive trees, sorry, Holy Spirit, Israel, but no, there's just imagery well, all over that, dripping with imagery. But then you have these very specific numbers, 1,260 days. I mean, it's not very figurative. It seems pretty literal. And so you have, and then who the two witnesses? This is just a fun debate for theologian geeks to sit around with. In fact, Fred and I just did it last week. He said, well, I'm," you know, I, he said, uh, Enoch, and Elijah, those are the two popular uh, picks, um, Enoch and Elijah. The reason for that is the Bible says that it's destined for every man to die once and then face judgment. Both Enoch and Elijah never died, right? They were taken up in heaven. So their day is still coming. That's one argument. Now, the other argument, as we read through this a little bit more, is that there's definitely imagery from Elijah's ministry in here, but there's also imagery from Moses' ministry. And so some people say it's Elijah and Moses. Now, some people say, okay, Elijah's there. Elijah's pretty much, people like like Elijah if they're gonna pick one. But then they'll say, we need a New Testament guy too. Yeah, so then we got John the Baptist or something in there. But as we saw with David here, you you can have two Old Testament before you have a New Testament. So I'm just kidding. So anyway, I mean, people have like debates about this. And here's my problem. I'm, I'm great with debates. I love the discussion. But when somebody says, this is what it is, Come on, folks. The church has disagreed about this for years. Let's not make this a, a die-for conclusion, okay? So who are the two witnesses? I don't know. Are they literal or figurative? Okay, well, we're conservative Baptists, so we're going to say literal, but I'm telling you there's a great argument the other way here. Let's read on a little bit more. And if anyone harm them, fire pour, pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. I mean, literal fire from their mouth? If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, and no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying Elijah. And they have the power over waters to run them into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague. Who who does that sound like? Moses. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified, which, by the way, is Jerusalem. For there, uh, for three and a half days, some, will, uh, some from the people of tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in the tomb, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, have Christmas. Because the two prophets have been, torma- uh, have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and the great fear felled on those who saw them, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here, and they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest uh, were terrified. And they gave glory to God in heaven, which is of all the, all the different plagues, the seals, the trumpets, this is the only time where people respond in that way. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Now, why did I share all that? And to say I'm not going to tell you what it all means. We can agree whether we, we say it symbolically or literally that there's some things that we can agree on. Um, and here's some things that we can agree on. God knows... His people. God knows what's going on. Like one of the themes in the seven churches, I know your works. I'm walking in your midst. What is going on here that's being revealed symbolically, literally, is that God knows what's going on. God knows what's happening. And I'm not just saying to you, don't worry about it, you don't need to know. God knows. What I'm saying is that God intimately knows what's going on in the life of his church and his believers, his family. He knows what's going on. He's not absent. The second thing that we can agree on is that God's witnesses stand for him. Whether this represents the church or uh, Elijah and, and uh, Moses or Elijah and Enoch and Elijah and whoever, like wh- whoever they are, you know what is, is true of God's witnesses is that they take a stand for him. They're willing to stand up in the midst of trials and tribulation. And point people to Jesus. That's what a witness of Jesus does. Now I'll tell you. There's a lot going on in Revelation. And it's scary stuff. There's beasts and dragons. There's martyrs. There's weird creatures. Sounds like a really good time. To circle the wagon. And wait out the storm. But over and over in Revelation, what is happening, what is being testified of, and what is being modeled is that the witnesses of Jesus take a stand. That's what we're called to do. And here's the good news. God protects his witnesses. Now, This is interesting. There's a period in time here where the witnesses couldn't be touched. They had fire coming out of their mouth. That sounds like a cool superpower to me. Now there is another time where they're laying in the street dead and people are exchanging gifts over it. And you go, I want the first kind of protection, Dave. Then what happens? Breath is breathed into them. And they are taken into the kingdom of heaven. God's people win either way. When you are faithful to witness, you may encounter persecution. But then you enter the kingdom. And so God protects his witnesses. I just think that's a, even symbolically, literally, people would agree on that. And so here, and here's my point of, of this morning. What I, what I want you to see is, is that God's people, God's witnesses, experience spiritual warfare. If you're surprised by spiritual warfare, then you have not been reading the same book that I'm reading. And I don't just mean Revelation. We're introduced on the first few pages. There's a serpent that's questioning God's authority. Where did he come from? Time out, Moses. Like, can you give a background here? He doesn't, but instantly he's questioning God. That's that is, There's a challenger to the throne right from the beginning, okay? You, you all know this, but don't miss it. Serpent, snake, dragon. In fact, in, in one of the verses, it just, it just says here, we just read it. Um, I just read it in our overall, if you're doing all the reading. It just basically says serpent, dragon, you know, say, they're all the same. Yeah, we, we, thank you for clarifying, but we knew that, right? The same one. There's spiritual warfare going on. Here's our call, church. God's witnesses bring glory to God. Man, through all this thing, what happens? When when the church is operating correctly, when God's witnesses are operating correctly, when when God is working through his people, even non-believers go, oh man, we need to give some glory to God there. That's an amazing thing. And so what I, I wanted to say here, just in, in the midst of just pause and revelation, all this stuff, what you, you've, you know, whatever camp you want to fall in, I want to tell you that, that there, it, life is going to have difficulties. You're called to overcome and endure and continue to be a witness. Now, jump over to chapter 12 with me. We'll kind of skip the seventh trumpet right now and just kind of go over to chapter 12. And then like, like Here's the part where you go, man, this would be, make a great children's book, The Woman and the Dragon. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet. Okay, that's figurative, just so you know. And on her head, a crown of 12 stars. Now, there's, there's all sorts of pictures here to Joseph's dreams. Remember when Joseph had dreams that the sun and the moon was bowing down to him? And so we have this, this, this Israel picture here. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony in giving birth. Now, you've got to just follow the story here before you get into all the Reve- Revelation imagery. There's a woman who's about to give birth. Can we? Okay, just there's the imagery. And what happens next? And another sign appeared in heaven, not a great sign, but a great red dragon. And not just any red dragon. This red dragon has seven heads and ten horns. And on his head, seven diadems. And his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Now, this this very much could be picturing the fall of Satan here. Uh, I mean, it seems like it. That imagery is used some other places. But what we have is a woman who's about to give birth and a dragon pursuing her. Women, just picture that. It's time to go to the hospital. Husband, there's a dragon outside. I mean, that sounds terrifying. Not, Not a good situation. And so... His tail swept away out of the stars of heaven and earth, and the dragon stood before the woman at, who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. All right. I'm not expecting any revelation experts here. Who is this? Okay, thank you. We're good. We're, we're, I, both sides, all sides agree on this talking about the birth of Jesus? Not all sides. Everybody has some weird. There's always some outliers in there. She gave birth to a male child, one who's to rule the nations with rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And what we have picture here is the whole li- birth, life, death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, just like that. Here it is. Let's get to the rest of the story. And the woman fled to the wilderness, and she had a place prepared by God. She was to be nourished. And what we have here is we have instantly this this spiritual warfare that's going on toward Jesus. But now the the woman in, in the wilderness represents more than just Mary. It represents the church. And the church is up against the dragon. And it's a big foe. And if you just stop at, at Revelation chapter 12, it's a pretty depressing story, but just so you know, that the dragon loses. We'll get to that in a few weeks. And what we have right here in this middle, what I think what, what John is just bringing us back to, okay, wherever you want to put the, the story of all this stuff, John is just reminding us of the gospel. He's reminding us of Jesus. How do we overcome? Such a formidable foe through Jesus. Who led the way. Who was the atonement of your sins. Who conquered death. And is at the right hand of the Father. Look, church, please hear me. You're not waiting for the rapture, although that would be great. You're resting in Jesus, who is on the throne and has all the power and authority. It's the gospel that helps us to overcome nothing else. Now, the final thing is in our overcoming, we're to overcome false teachers, We're to overcome apathy. And then finally, we're to overcome the dragon and the Babylon that we live in. In chapters 12, uh, uh, end of of chapters 12 now, uh, Satan is thrown down to the earth. And then we have this idea of the first beast and second beast. And actually, what's presented in Revelation is an anti-trinity of of three that is facing the trinity uh, that we worship. And we're called to, to overcome. Satan is on the move. And he's on the move today. Um, Satan uh, rules uh, through the political uh, worlds and powers of this, this time. Chapter 17, uh, verse 2 says, um, I love it when I have stuff in my notes. and I'm like, oh, what did that say? Um, chapter 17 says, "The one." Uh, Of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality. With The wine of those sexual immorality, the dwellers of the earth have become drunk. Satan is tied in with the political systems of this world. Okay, so whoa, we don't have a king, we have a president. Whatever, okay? Satan works through the powers that are in this world. Um, he, he uses uh, religion as a measure of control. Uh, Rome did it. Babylon did it. Money. Sexual immorality. Worship. These are all themes in Revelation of what Babylon is like. And let me just say worship just for a second, not singing songs but what I give worth to, what I bow to. Satan's rule will come to an end. Um, But it's noted in here a few different times. It was, was, uh, I was kind of highlighting it as I was reading through it uh, a little bit ago. Um, And it it just keeps repeating that uh, he was given power for a time. He was given authority for a time. Um, to Mackey in in his overview of Revelation has kind of a a theme of this. All human kingdoms become Babylon and must be resisted. We all have a tendency to give in to the power, the, the control, the money, the sexual morality, worshiping things that we want to give worth to, and we need to stand against that. So here's the call. Here's the application. Um, Sorry, I got behind. To overcome the dragon by being faithful witnesses to the end. You and I are called to overcome the dragon, the serpent, by being faithful witnesses to the end. You know that sounds intimidating. Okay. If if I were to say, and you know, we, we all were on the same page, we believed it, we're gonna go fight a dragon some of you would be like, I don't want to go on that quest. But what are all the great literary pieces of history? They're all about a quest to defeat the dragon, to to defeat the powers of evil, to to put things back in place. Here's the amazing thing. Church, you are a part of the drama of God's story. You get to be a part of that. And Satan introduced the recliner so that dads can sit on a different kind of quest and watch these things happen and make-believe. When you're already a warrior, men and women, you're already in a battle. You're already a part of the greatest quest of all time to defeat the dragon by being faithful witnesses to the end. You're called to engage in the battle, even unto death. And you know what? We have, the great thing is the heroes of the Bible, they did that. Even unto death. Some of the greatest missionary stories, some of the greatest missionary stories do not end with, and they lived happily ever after. They don't end that way. They end with they were faithful to the end. Our call is to resist Babylon by becoming a kingdom-minded people. I'm really tired of hearing about the left and the right. I am sick of it. And if you think one of those sides is going to save us, I'm sorry, but you have not read this book. They're both ruled by the same person, I think. I don't think Satan cares whether the left or the right is in in power. I don't don't think he cares anymore. It's a win-win situation for him. Here's what you're called to every day. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're called to resist whatever evil is on the left or the right. And if you only call it out on one side, the younger generation will not listen to you anymore. They will not. You have to call out evil on both sides. And that's what we're called to do in the book of Revelation. Father God, we pray your kingdom come. Because we're not going to get it figured out completely. We know that. But, Lord, we do look for that day when justice is fulfilled, when things are set back in place. But, God, I pray that as a church, that as a people of God, that you would help us to continue to be faithful to the end. Thank you for our dads this morning. Thank you for worship and a community to come together, in. we praise you for that. Uh, Thank you for the Revis family and and just being able to celebrate with them. God, may you be glorified and uh, be with us as we celebrate our dads today. In Jesus' name, amen.